let me say thanks again for having me this week. It's been a wonderful time to explore Auckland. And I want to just correct as well. Uh, as soon as I shared those prayer points earlier, I realized oh, I was being a bit impersonal and distant there. So let me share something a bit more real that you can be in prayer for me with because I'm amongst family. Although I'm in a different city, you guys are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I've been convicted lately of a heart that is caught up in trivial things of the world, and I've noticed that in my use of money and time. So if you want to pray for me that uh, I would, in the next six months, figure out how to use my time to better uh, contribute. Yeah, I don't even know what I need to be doing with my money and time there. I've been thinking a lot about contributing in acts of mercy. And in Australia, you might have heard in the news over here, um, we've got a real issue in thinking about asylum seekers and refugees. So I've been trying to wrestle with what I can be doing uh, to contribute to justice and mercy in that regard. So just thought I would correct that because I didn't want to set a bad example of only praying for trivial, impersonal things. Uh, Now, getting to Peter... Do you remember that feeling? Uh, for some of you, this will be a bit longer ago than for others. But I want to take you to Christmas Day and the lead up to Christmas. And do you remember that feeling when you would start to see presents come underneath the tree and you'd think, oh, what am I going to get? You'd see your name on one of them and you've put your Christmas present list into your parents and you're thinking, is this one of the things that I asked for? Which one is it? And so you do all that you can to get your hands on that present and give it a bit of a shake have a feel of it, poke and prod at it, and figure out what is this present for me. Do you remember that feeling? A bit of excitement going on. Who wants a present this morning? Who said me? Come on down. This is legit. I'm giving away a present. It's uh, good to be generous. But the only catch is you're not going to get to open it now. We're going to have to wait till after the service. But I want you to have a bit of a shake of it and see what you can figure out about what it might be. Welcome, Elma. It's a tricky one, isn't it? A scarf or a hat. Those are our guesses. All right, cool. It is nice and soft, isn't it? Well, we'll see later on if you got that right, Elmer. The reason I do that is that this morning, as we come to 2 Peter 3, we're looking at an event in the future, and it's something that we should be really excited about. We're looking at the day when Jesus will return. It's a bit like the wrapped up Christmas present though. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. The Bible doesn't give us everything that we would want to know. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But it does give us more than enough indications that we can get excited about this day when Jesus comes back. So what we're doing this morning, we're just going to give this day a bit of a shake, poke and prod at it and see what we can figure out. And I hope and pray that God will work in us an excitement for Jesus to come back. So would you pray with me for that to happen as we get started? Father God, thank you that you are a God who keeps his word. You're always faithful and true to your promises. Please this morning, help us to get excited about this coming day that you have promised. Help us to get a sense of what it will be like to come through Jesus' return into the new creation. And so please, would you transform our lives that we might live as people who find our identity and our home, not in this world, but in the world to come. Amen. Well, to help things stick in our mind this morning, I've got three S words for us. You'll find these in the outline in your bulletin that you received on the way in. 
But when Jesus returns, it's going to be surprising. It's going to be shocking. But for some people, it will be safe. Or if I've picked up some good New Zealand lingo in my time here, it will be sweet as. So we're going to just take each of those S words one by one and press into what they mean. So first, Jesus' return will be surprising. Have a look at 2 Peter 3 verse 10. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been broken into and robbed. It's not something that's happened to me before. But a few years ago, my aunt and uncle were robbed. They went away on holiday for about a week and a half. And when they got back from their holiday, they opened the front door and they noticed that things were a bit untidy. They went into their bedroom and noticed that some drawers had been pulled open and a few things shifted around. Went down into the garage and the ute and the motorbikes that they'd left there, they were gone. That was a surprise to them. They hadn't expected to be robbed. It's not like the kids who stole from them, and they did get caught a bit later on, so we know they were kids. They hadn't left a note in the letterbox the week before saying, hey guys, just wanted to let you know, next Wednesday we're going to stop by and we're going to steal all your stuff. Robbers don't do that. Robbers take you by surprise. Jesus is going to come like a thief. Suddenly, without warning. Now, some Christians spend a lot of time trying to figure out the exact day and date when Jesus will return. Or maybe not the exact day and date, but looking out for signs that his coming might be getting closer and closer. They use different bits of the Bible and figure out a period of seven years here and three and a half years over there, a thousand years. There's a war that's happening in this particular part of the world. There's a famine over here. Maybe Jesus' return is getting closer. Friends, that's futile. That's not something that Christians are meant to give time to. We heard in the kids' talk earlier from Matthew 25 that our posture is just to be one of always being ready because Jesus could come at any moment. We may not finish the sermon today. Jesus could come back now. When Jesus returns, it will be surprising. Secondly, it will also be shocking. When Peter speaks in verse 10 there of the day of the Lord, he's not just making up a new phrase, but he's drawing on a phrase that comes throughout the whole Old Testament, particularly when we hit the prophets in the Old Testament. And so as he uses this phrase, day of the Lord, his original readers or hearers would have had a lot of imagery rolling through their minds. They knew what this day of the Lord meant. I want us to try to get some weight of what this would have been like for Peter's first hearers. So I'm going to read for us Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah is a small prophet in the Old Testament, and he speaks like many of the prophets about this day of the Lord. So just let this chapter wash over you. I want to see how you feel at the end of it. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers, 
I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. How do you feel? I feel small. I feel a bit uncomfortable. The day of the Lord, this imagery that Peter is drawing on, is a day of fierce and fiery judgment. This is the day when God pours out all his anger on his enemies. Jesus is coming as the great and final judge who will once and for all destroy all the evil and injustice in the world. We see that this is what Peter's thinking of in his language of fiery destruction that comes throughout this chapter. Look at how 2 Peter 3 verse 10 continues. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavens will pass away with a roar. I think if you're reading the Holman, it'll have a loud noise. The heavens here... We're not talking about the place where God is or the place where Christians will go when they die. Uh, heavens here is the counterpart to the earth. And when we speak of God creating the heavens and the earth to represent all of the universe. Peter here is talking about the skies, all the planets, the sun and the moon burning up. The roar, that loud noise that he's speaking of, that's the sound of a massive fire. I come from Australia. We have bushfires every summer. If you ever get close enough to a bushfire to hear it, it's this massive roar as all the oxygen is getting sucked out of the air to fuel the flames. You get a hint of that sound if you have a gas oven or an open fire. A little crackle and the roar of the flame burning. Peter goes on talking about this fire when he says that the heavenly bodies or the elements be burned up and dissolved. The elements there, we're talking about the sun and the moon, the planets, the stars. All of these will be destroyed in a destructive fire. They'll melt. It's not just the sky that's going to be affected though. As verse 10 finishes, it's the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When I finished high school, I took a trip, a road trip with some friends of mine up to Tea Gardens and we were sitting around a big bonfire. It was a great night. But as the night went on, one of my mates had had a little bit to drink and he found a can of Mortine in the house. So he brings that out to the fire, sprays it in the flame so that it becomes a little flamethrower. We've all done that, haven't we? Um, it's good fun. Uh, after he'd done that, he turned it onto my bare legs uh, all my leg hair got burnt off. It really stank. I don't recommend burning hair. It's not a pleasant thing. Uh, but that kind of experience of flame stripping away things that are extra, that's, 
That's the image that Peter's got here. As the skies are burning up, as there's this massive fire in the sky, the earth with the heat, everything is just stripped back. And the earth is left pink and raw. There's no more hiding from God on this day. Peter's focus here is the total destruction of everything physical that we know. The whole created order burning up. In case you think I'm overemphasizing this here, have a look at Peter. He says exactly the same thing in verse 12. He wants to drill this point home. Verse 12, because of the day of God, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies, the elements will melt as they burn. This is the shocking side of Jesus' return. And at this point, it's like we've picked up that Christmas present and we've been pricked by something really sharp in there and it's drawn some blood. It it doesn't feel safe. Do we really want to open it now? Can't we just pack it away in the cupboard? To think of a future day when everything will be destroyed, well, that's a future that I'd rather ignore. Thank you very much. Many Christians these days are uncomfortable with the angry God who will judge They like to pack him up in a little box and say, no, that's the God of the Old Testament. I believe in the God of the New Testament, the God who is love. I wonder if you feel that temptation sometimes. But friends, we're in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, and he's talking about a God who will judge fiercely. We can't just leave God to the Old Testament. God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we make sense of a God who's going to carry out such judgment as we've just seen. And more than just make sense of that God, how do we actually love that God? How do we love a God who is going to judge? Well, the story doesn't stop with destructive fire. That's not the goal. That's not the finish of Jesus' work when he comes again. It's not like he's just going to destroy everything because he can. No, this destruction is a means to an end. So this takes us to our third S for this morning. When Jesus returns, it will be surprising, it will be shocking, but for some people, it will be safe. Have a look at 2 Peter 3 verse 13. We've just heard about this destruction that's coming. Then we get a but. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. The destruction that will unfold when Jesus comes again is a necessary and a just means to a very loving end. The world as we know it is not the world as God wants it to be. We live in a world that is scarred by sin. There's injustice and oppression everywhere. I'm not sure in New Zealand how much you feel the sting of injustice. As I look around the room, I suspect that many of us live as a majority people group in a wealthy and democratic society. So we probably don't feel the sting of systemic injustice much at all. But even in a bubble-wrapped society like we might live in, we still know that the world is broken, don't we? Bullies tear us down and make life horrible for us. Death robs us of loved ones all too soon. Families break apart in arguments or stew away quietly in domestic violence. Drunkenness spills over into the streets with its associated violence. Our world 
is broken by sin. This is not the world that God created as the perfect place for us to live. So God needs to remove from this earth every spot and blemish. God needs to destroy sin and injustice. And so Jesus will come as the judge and with fiery anger, he'll destroy everything that has harmed the humanity he created and loves. He'll purify the earth with fire and out of the ashes that remain, he'll form a new heavens and a new earth a place where righteousness feels at home, a place where everything will be right and just all the time, a place where people only do what is just and good and true and honourable and right, a place where you never have to look over your shoulder, worried as you're walking home late at night, a place where there's no more decay, no more ageing, no more sickness, no more death. These are some of the pictures that the Bible gives us of what new creation will be like. We can't yet unwrap it and see it fully. I don't know what age will be in new creation. I don't know if I'll be able to fly. I don't know if there'll be great surf all the time. But I do know that it will be even better than we can imagine. We're not heading for a boring heaven where we're sitting on clouds strumming golden harps, singing some Keith Green song from the 80s that we don't even really like that much. That's not where we're going. We're headed for an amazing new creation where everything that is good in this world is made even better because every element of sin and therefore danger is taken out of it. Now, this is a little bit sneaky, but I want to share with you a simple reflection that gets me excited about new creation. It's sneaky because it's not particularly there in 2 Peter 3. uh, But as I look at the New Testament picture as a whole, uh, one of the things that excites me is thinking of new creation as the eternal moment. I'm a surfer, so I like to think of the moment where you're just in the present and and not worried at all about the past or the future. You get this sense when you're with someone that you love and you're not checking your phone every 10 minutes. You don't care what's happening anywhere else in the world right now. You're not thinking about the past. You have no regrets that are plaguing you. You're not thinking about the future, no worries that are keeping you hung up. I mean, this image excites me because I'm a sinner. And I have things in the past that I regret. And I've grown up in a family that loves to worry about the future. You know, my mum will ask every question about every possible bad scenario that could happen in 10 years' time, and that will affect her now. And so I love the idea of being in a place where I know with full conviction that Jesus has wiped away all my sin, that my conscience is cleansed, that I know as far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken my sin from me. At the moment, I believe that. But gee, I still struggle with those feelings of regret. And I'm looking forward to a place where I will know with full conviction that God has my future covered. Where I don't have to worry at all about the future because I'm fully held in God's love. That's the joy of new creation. If that particular image doesn't work for you, we can go back to the basics of what you might teach your kid in family devotions or what you might have learned at Sunday school. Just think about the best experience you've ever had. Get that feeling in mind, the most joy that you've ever felt. Now, I could say multiply that by 100, but who can multiply a feeling by 100? That's just silly talk. Try to multiply it just by two. Think of that feeling of joy doubled. You know, already we're at mind-blowing joy and peace. 
Friends, God has a good new world in store for us. A place where righteousness will dwell, where he lives and where we can see him face to face. Jesus' return will usher in this new time of unprecedented and never-ending safety. And so because of that future, as we cast our mind back to those images of devastating fire, well, for some people that holds no terror. Have a look at the way Peter phrases it in verse 11 and 12. He says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter expects us to not just think that Jesus might come at some point in the future, but eagerly await it, look forward to it. For some, Jesus' return will be destruction. But for others, Jesus' return will be this welcome into eternal pleasure. So I hope this raises the question for you of who's who? How do I get to be one who can look forward to Jesus' return? Because frankly, we all contribute to the injustice of this world. As good a person as you might be, and I'm sure there are some good people amongst us this morning, you have committed some evil. You have a heart that is bent on selfishness and therefore contributes to injustice. If I was to take my current selfish heart into new creation, I'd spoil it. It would no longer be that safe and perfect place. So for whom will Jesus' return be safe? Well, this is not a safety that we can earn by doing enough good deeds. In Peter's language, Jesus' return will be safe only for those who repent and who trust God's promises. Have a look at verse 9. Notice the opposites that Peter uh, draws out here. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So notice the opposite. You either perish or you come to repentance. Uh, Repentance is like doing a U-turn in the car. You've been driving one way and you realize, oh no, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around. Uh, As far as God is concerned, repentance is therefore turning away from ignoring God, treating him with apathy, treating him as an add-on to your life and turning the other way and saying, okay, God, I want you to be my God, be my Lord. It's turning away from your acts of evil, those things that we call sin. No longer trying to hide them away, but admitting them to God and saying, this is where I am. I'm going to turn my life around. Let's go the other way. That's repentance. And in some ways, that's common to all religion. It's saying, I've been doing things the wrong way. I'm going to turn around and do things a new way. So we repent, but then we also trust. Because even once we've repented, we're not going to be adding enough good works. We're not going to be cleaning ourselves up so that finally somehow we might fix our heart. We can't do that to ourselves. We need to trust God's promise. Do you see that language in verse 9 and verse 13 of 2 Peter 3? Our expectation of new creation is based on God's promise. Uh, Peter here doesn't fill out what that promise is. He just assumes that we know it. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, he's given us a bit more content of this promise. 
He said that God has given us promises that we might share in his divine nature and escape the corruption of our flesh. That sounds like what we need, right? We need to get rid of the corruption. We need to get rid of this evil heart and be like God. God has promised to do that for us. God has promised, and we find this back in Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 3 verse 18, that Jesus died for sins once for all, the innocent for the guilty, to bring us to God. I don't know exactly how that happens. I don't understand the ins and outs of it. But God has promised, and so I have a choice. Either I can say to God, I don't believe that you really do this. I don't believe that Jesus' death really has achieved all of that. Or I can say, okay, God, you've promised it. I think you're faithful. I'll trust you. Repent and trust. If you're here this morning and you know that you haven't been treating Jesus very well, either you've been ignoring him or straight out blaspheming him, can I urge you this morning, do business with God. Jesus' return will be surprising and sudden. You may not make it home from church today. I want everyone to leave today knowing where you will be when Jesus returns. Make sure you are ready for him. Repent. Turn back from your rejection of Jesus. He died to bring about a friendship between you and God. Trust him. If you are uncertain about how you will fare when Jesus returns, come and talk to me after the service or talk to someone else that is here that you trust. Make sure that you know and are prepared for Jesus to come. Now, for many of us that are here this morning, we already are on this daily journey of repentance and trust. We wake up each day knowing that we need Jesus to forgive us. We repent, we trust him. Uh, but I reckon even still, we struggle to look forward to Jesus' return. I know in my heart, I can hear a sermon like this and I'll be like, yes, amen, Jesus is going to come, this is great. might be two weeks before I think about it again. I might have a good day or two, but it just slips from mind. Why is that? Why do we struggle to look forward to Jesus coming back? Well, I want to give us three reasons and suggest some solutions to help us grow in this area. And then we'll close in prayer. First reason, it's just been so long since Jesus was around. We assume that he won't come in our lifetime. You know, I look at my grandparents. They've lived their 80 years of life and died generation before them. We've had 2,000 years of generations come and go, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Why would he do it in my lifetime? I'm going to live out my 80 years of life. This is not a new problem for us, but there were some people thinking like this in Peter's time. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 3. There are these scoffers who have come, and they're saying, where is the promise of Jesus coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Life just rolls on. Now, what's the solution to this feeling? Well, Peter gives us two answers. In verse 5 to 7, Peter encourages us to remember the power of God's word. That very word that spoke creation into existence. The very word that caused the flood to destroy the earth in Noah's time. Another time when people were just going on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They didn't expect God to actually flood the earth. Well, that's the same word by which Jesus has said he will come back. 
God's word is powerful. It's binding. God keeps his promises. So that's our first solution. Remember that God keeps his promises. And secondly, Peter reminds us of who God is in verse 8. The time doesn't function for God the same way that it does for us. might be 2,000 years for us, but to God, that's just a couple of days. Jesus will return suddenly, like a thief. The second reason we might struggle to look forward to Jesus' return is because, quite frankly, this earth is pretty good. We like things down here. I like my car. It's a 91 Camry. It, It goes beautifully. I like my job. I get to hang out with fun people in a fun, colourful store. I'm looking forward to finishing college. So sure, Jesus, come back, but wait till after graduation, please. And, and please wait till after I'm married. You know, I'd love to experience fatherhood and marriage and all of those good things. What is it for you? What are you clinging to that stops you from looking forward to Jesus' return? Peter's solution for us in this is to remind us that everything of this created order is going to be burnt up. If you knew that in five years' time your house was going to be demolished, how much would you invest into it? So we need to hear Jesus' words. Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up treasure in heaven. Earth is full of good things that come from God and are to be received with thanksgiving. We do live in a good and beautiful world. But all of those good things point to even better pleasure that is to be had in new creation. This is the preview and the movie's coming. Whatever it is that you enjoy about a good part of this creation, that will be even more satisfying when Jesus returns. And so if we can incorporate into our lives some kind of thanksgiving with anticipation of these good things being fulfilled, And that will help us to look forward to Jesus coming again. Third and finally then, another reason why we might struggle to look forward to Jesus' return is that for some people that we dearly love, they are not ready for Jesus to come back. This one's the hardest one, isn't it? I can want Jesus to come back, but if he was to come back right now, I have cousins, aunts and uncles, dear friends who would be destroyed, who would face God's anger. And I can only imagine what that would feel like if that person for you is a child or a spouse or a parent. Even to hear it put in such stark words as they'll face destruction, that hurts, doesn't it? So what do we do with this feeling? I think this one's really tough. But have a look at 2 Peter 3 verse 9 and see what he gives us as a potential solution to this. Not solution, you can't solve this feeling, but a potential way to help navigate it. In verse 9 he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why has it been 2,000 years? According to God here through 2 Peter, it's because God wants to save more and more people. God's arms are always open to any and everyone who turns to him and calls on him to be saved. So I think what that does for us practically is that we're to long for Jesus to return and to let 
that longing drive us to an urgency in prayer that we plead with God to save those whom we love. And we do our part in proclaiming the gospel to them, telling them that they need to repent and trust Jesus. But we can't get in and change their heart. We need God to do that. And so get on your knees and plead with God to save. Well, there's a bit of poking and prodding about the wrapped up day of Jesus' return. We've got a whole new creation, a perfected creation with all the brokenness of this world done away all the good things of this world multiplied and fulfilled. A place of safety and security, peace and prosperity, rest and refreshment. Life in the moment with God, that's ours to look forward to. And so I thought I'd close by uh, leading us in a prayer that comes from the Puritan Christians. They lived in 16th and 17th century England and they were really good at looking forward to Jesus' return and not getting caught up in this world. Uh, Richard Baxter, one of these Puritan guys, he, he would be his solution for us not longing for Jesus to return. He says to his church members, you need to be meditating on the new creation for half an hour every day. That's a big call. Uh, I would struggle to do that. But that's how seriously these Puritan guys took it. So I'm going to pray a prayer that was written by these guys. Uh, have a listen in, and if you agree with what we're asking for, uh, you can say a hearty amen at the end, and then we'll get Elmer down to unwrap his present. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we head into another week, we commit ourselves to your care. Watch over us, guide us, bless us, mold us wholly into the image of Jesus as a potter forms clay. Let those around us see us living by your spirit, transformed by a renewed mind, shining as a never dimmed light showing holiness in all that we do. In everything that we do this week, may our deepest desires be in heaven, our gaze fixed on the things that are unseen, our eyes open to the emptiness, fragility, mockery of earth and its vanities. May we view all things in the mirror of eternity, waiting for the coming of Jesus, longing for the new heaven and the new earth. May we speak each word as if our last word, walk each step as our final one. If our life should end today, let this be our best day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Elmer, come on down. Let's see what you got. So the guess was a scarf or a hat of some kind. Socks and undies, that would be an interesting one. Open it up, let us all see. A uh, bit of a preface to this. So I work at Typo in Sydney as well. So this has come from a, a good Typo store. Not a scarf or a hat. What is it? It's a burger. It's a burger. It's a pencil case. So there you go. Have some fun with your burger pencil case Typo. Yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, let's leave it at that.